Amen, and thank you. That was a special request. I've enjoyed some Lauren Daigle lately, and then this morning we are talking about uh, the, the, the biblical doctrine, the biblical experience of uh, being born again, of, of uh, regeneration. And so I think that this song plays in as we think about what that looks like as God speaks into our lives to call us to life. So uh, we're, we're in a series walking through of uh, life in the Spirit, talking about the Holy Spirit and His work in our lives. Last time we talked about who He is um, as, as a third person of the Trinity, as a person. Um, and uh, today we, we begin with his, the first work that He does really in the life of a believer in what we call uh, the new birth to be born again, regeneration, to be regenerate, as the Scripture says. So we're in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. I'm going to read. We'll touch on some other things. Hear then the Word of God. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. And so by grace, you have been saved. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we have gathered this morning as your people to sit at your feet, to hear your word, that you might not only give us information, that you would draw our hearts into worship and life transformation. Father, we come this morning not only to sit at your feet, but to give you our hearts and to re-consecrate our lives to you. So, Father, help us as we sit under your word that we might be renewed by it and called to life again. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. In John chapter 4, Jesus says that whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again, because the water that I will give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He said, I'm going to give you water to drink, that when you drink it, will become a well. You won't thirst again, you won't have to drink again, because it will become an internal well The water that goes in will stay there, in a sense, produce and become a well of water, welling up, he says, to eternal life. In John chapter 7, he says, whoever believes in me, that is, who drinks the water that I will give him, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It will become a, a, a source, a fountain of new life. And he says it will flow out of the heart. Now in Matthew 15, 9, he says, 15, 19, he says, out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder, adultery and sexual immorality, and the list actually goes on. In other words, out of the heart flows all kinds of things that are not of God. But he says, 
the one who comes and drinks, the one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, something different will flow. Something new will flow. Out of his heart will flow rivers of life. New things. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. He has a new heart. And out of that new heart, new things flow. See, the problem with the modern church is often we have lost touch with what the Bible says about conversion, about what it means to become a Christian. And we, as the Bible describes it, as this radical spiritual event that having believed in Christ and drunk of his spirit, he says, I will give you a new heart. And out of that heart, out of this radical spiritual event where anyone in Christ is a new creation, will flow rivers of a new life, a new way of thinking, new desires, new passions, new loves, right, that are more in line with who God is and his word. We've reduced conversion very often from this radical spiritual event of, of a new heart to something of a transaction. Where people, if you will agree with two or three truths and pray a prayer, you're saved. And often the church, not necessarily here, but out there, is telling people if you've prayed that prayer, you're saved, whether your life changes or not whether there's a well of springing water flowing or not, whether there's new things coming out, whether you're a new person or not, we just tell people if you've prayed the prayer, you're a Christian, just believe it. And, and it's a dangerous thing to tell folks because it's not necessarily true. Salvation isn't a transaction, it's a new birth. It's a, it's a radical work of God in the life and the heart of a person to make them new and to raise them from the dead. But for those where nothing changes, there's no heart for God's word, no heart for prayer, no heart for holiness, no heart for worship, no heart for the things of God who are still live for themselves and who, you know, go on about their business. Where nothing is changes, there is no new heart. This is why in Galatians 6.15, as Paul has been talking about the outward and the inward and this work of God that he does by grace through faith in the heart of a believer, it says in Galatians 6.15 that neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation, right? None, none of this matters for anything, he says, except for the new creation. And, you know, circumcision, uncircumcision may not hit the same kind of bells for us. He would say prayer or no prayer, walk the aisle or no aisle, check the box or no box, you know, baptism or no baptism, he says, counts for nothing. Ultimately, except there's a new creation. If there's a new creation, all those things have meaning. But underneath it, there is a radical spiritual reality accomplished by the power and the grace of God's Spirit. Jesus said in John 3, we must be born again. We must be born of the Holy Spirit. He says that which is born of the flesh is flesh. It's natural. It is what it is. He says, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit, is a new heart, is a new life, is a fountain of something more. Paul is describing this radical spiritual event in the passage that I just read. He's describing the radical event that takes place in someone who is saved and brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. 
But as he describes it, the first thing he does is he describes the need for it, right? Which is not a pretty picture. Sometimes when I preach and you open a text and you're like, this is where you really feel like God is speaking this concept. I could go different places, you know, and then it says some of the hard things it says in verses one to three. There's a temptation in the church today to skip that part, right? To not talk about it. Uh, because it's not a pretty picture, and sometimes they're hard things to hear, but, but the Scripture doesn't shy away from those things. It says them right up front, frankly, boldly, as Paul's trying to tell you about it. He says you need to understand, if you want to understand, that you want to see the stars shining in the night, you got to see the, the black sky shining in the background. To understand the new birth is to understand the need for it, as he describes the state of the entire human race. And he says, unless and until there's a new creation by the new spirit and a new heart, verses one to three, describe that state. So in verses one and two, he says, and you, no matter who you are in the church, no matter who you are in the world, but he's writing to the church and he says, you were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work among the sons of disobedience. He says, until a person is born again, we are the walking dead. Right? We are the walking dead. He says, you're walking around. He says, in these things you once lived. But while you lived in these things, he says, you were dead. Right? You, were, you were the walking dead. You were alive physically. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but you were not alive spiritually because that which is born of the spirit is spirit, and here there's no spirit. And so you're walking around, he says, but we're the walking dead, spiritually speaking, in our trespasses and sins. Spiritually, when God told Adam, the day you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will die. And the day came when he did eat of the fruit of the tree. And he was still walking around. But he was the walking dead at that moment. That spiritual, that's where spiritual, the spiritual life went. That's where an, awake, an awareness of God and spiritual things and a love for those things died. The spirit died. And so Adam, starting with him in the walking dead, unless he do a work, unless he does something, he says, this is the condition. And so he describes and he goes into verse 3, and among whom you once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of body and mind, you're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so what Paul is describing is what theologians call total depravity, right? A, a situation of, hum, uh, uh, of mankind of the human race, a situation in which we find ourselves, how the world has been twisted away from loving God and worshiping God and honoring God as God and thanking God as God and living for him and, and honoring him and bearing in our own lives the, the fruit, his image of who he is and what he describes here is the following not of his image but of the course of this world living like the world, he says. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. You died. Sin brought death. And he says, and, and at one time you walked in it, you followed the course of this world. 
Instead of God's word, instead of God's way, instead of in light of his holiness and who he is, you're following the course of the world. You're following something else. Living to please ourselves instead of God. This is why in James 4, verse 4, he says that whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Right? And so he paints this picture. There's a friend of the world is the enemy of God. That's verses 1 to 3. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world and following the course of this world, he says, but also following the prince of the power of the air, which is an unusual expression. And rather digging down into what he is saying there, I'll simply point out that when he says that, he is talking about the devil, the evil one. And he says that apart from this work, this new birth, apart from God radically intervening, he says, we follow the course of this world, being spiritually dead to spiritual things. And he says, and when we do that, he says, you follow the prince of the power of the air. You follow then the ways of the evil one rather than the ways of God. In 1 John 5, 19, he says, We know that we are from God. He's been talking about the new birth, those who are born again. He says, we know that we have been born of God, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. They follow the course of the world and the prince of the power of the air, and they lie under his power, living and doing those things, following these things. He says, at work in the sons of disobedience, those who are living in rebellion, to the creator. Verse three, all of us, he says, at one time lived then in our own passions, the mind and the body. He's following our own flesh, right? He says, lived in the passions of the flesh. This is why in Romans eight, seven, he says, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot submit to his law. Right, so he paints this picture of in a spiritual inability. Second Corinthians 4.4, 4, he says, in that case, in their case, the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He can't, they can't see it. And so in verse 3, he says that by nature, They are children of wrath, the walking dead, children of disobedience, he says, who are children then of wrath. Meaning the children of disobedience, those who live in rebellion against God, live under his wrath, live under the judgment that will come from that disobedience. And he ends making it clear who he's talking about in verse 3, ends that verse saying, like the rest of mankind. He says this is the state of the human race apart from God's radical intervention. And it's not a pretty picture. But that's what the Bible teaches that unless the Holy Spirit raises us from the dead spiritually, causes us to be born again, that we are the walking dead whose minds and hearts are blind to spiritual things. And because we're blind to the glory of spiritual things and the beauty of holiness and of purity and of life and faithfulness, we are following the course of the world, living in disobedience and rebellion against God. 
unless God does something to cause our dead hearts to live, to give us eyes to see. And that's where this verse tells us, as he sets this up, and Paul kind of just lays it out there, but he moves on. It's in the middle of a long section talking about what God has done. But we can't understand the beauty and the power and the glory of what he has done and what he saves us from if we, saves us too, unless we understand what he has saved us from. Where we were, helpless, and what we needed and what was wrong with us. And it says in verses four and five, as he, as he finishes this out, by nature, children of wrath like, the, wrath, like the rest of mankind. And then he says, but God, being rich in his mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, even when we were those people, he made us alive together with Christ. But God, now, at the risk of losing the, the, the gravity of the moment, I, I heard a preacher once say, and I think that it's, that it's true and we need to grasp it in the way that it's meant, but he says, this is probably the biggest but in the Bible, right? But God, all of this stuff he said about the human race, you know, in our situation, and then he says, but God, right? But then God did something, right? God intervened. He didn't leave us like we were. He didn't leave us to go the way of the world. He, he stepped in. Even when we were dead, it says, he stepped in and he did something. Sovereignly, graciously, powerfully, he intervened. And why? He says, because he is rich in mercy because he has a desire to save, because he is a God who gives life. He is the Lord and the giver of life, because he is rich in mercy and because of the great love with which he has loved us. Now, what is the great love with which he has loved us? And he doesn't leave us wondering. In fact, if you're reading the book through, reading the letter through, he's already talked about the great love. So when he gets to this section and he says this is where we were before God intervened, and he says he did it because of the great love, we would have in their mind chapter 1. In chapter 1, he says this in verses 4 and 5. In chapter 1, he says he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. In love. He predestined us for the adoption to himself as sons and daughters in Jesus Christ. Before the very foundations of the world, he said, he set his love on us. He set his love on you. If you are in Christ, it says, before the world was made, he set his love on you. He determined that he would raise you from the dead and adopt you as his child before the world was made and eternity passed. He loved you. Planned you to make you his child. And so for how many eons or ages it has been where God's love has been set upon you and then in the course of time, in the great love with which he had loved you from, from all eternity, it says, because of that great love, he intervened and he made you alive in Christ Jesus. And he makes it very clear that he did this when we were dead. 
God being rich in his mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead, loving us even when we were those people in that state, in that condition, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that's when he loved us, and that, when we were dead, is when he made us alive. That's when he intervened. Dead to God, following the world, following the evil one, enslaved to our own passions, spiritually dull and unable to do anything. And it says, when you were dead, he made you alive, raised you from the dead, caused you to be, as the Bible said, born again, brought to life, giving you new hearts that love new things, new passions, new desires, new appetites, and gave you eyes to see the truth of his word, the truth of the way it describes the world that we live in, a world that he created with a moral fabric, a right and a wrong, and a good and an evil, right? And he, and he gives us eyes to see. This is the first work of the Holy Spirit and the saving of God's people is to, is to make you alive and give you a new eyes and new ears where you were dead to spiritual things and you couldn't hear and you couldn't see and it was foolishness to you. He makes you alive and gives you eyes to see and ears to hear so that you will trust in Christ. We see this taught throughout the scripture in the Old and New Testament. A couple of classic pictures in the Old Testament that we often uh, uh, pull from. Ezekiel eleven nineteen. As Ezekiel is talking and looking forward to the new covenant that will be in Christ, he looks forward and he says, I will give them, God says, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put in them. And putting the spirit in them, you will become a fountain, a river of life in those who have his spirit. I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I'll remove their heart of stone. Right? What's a stone like? What, is, what do stones do? What do stones hear? What do stones say? What do stones, I'm going to take your heart a stone. Walking dead, you have a body, we live, he says, but your heart spiritually is dead to God and to spiritual things. And he says, well, here's what I'm going to do. I will come to you, I'll take your heart of stone, and I'll give you a heart of flesh, a heart that lives a heart that beats, a heart that sees and hears and knows and loves spiritual things. Ezekiel 37, 3 and 4, that's why I had him play this song. I think of the valley of dry bones. And verses 1 to 3 remind me of the valley of dry bones in which you once lived, he says. But he, he has the Son of Man come and stand before the valley. And he says, Son of Man, can these bones live? We look at the human race and we say three, three this week, you know, in terms of hate crimes, but we watch the news in terms of all that is going across the globe. And then we look in the mirror and we know our own hearts. And the question becomes, can these bones live? Can these bones live? The answer is, oh, Lord God, only you know. If there's going to be life, if, if these bones can live, only you know. Only you can do it. If they live, it's because you make them live. There's nothing I stand here surveying the carnage can do. Only you know, O oh Lord. 
And so he tells him, prophesy to these bones, speak the gospel over the world, over the lost, and say to them, oh, dry bones, hear the words of the Lord. And if they hear, if they have ears to hear and eyes to see the truth, it is because God is at work bringing dead hearts to life. In John 3, 3, that's why Jesus says, truly, truly, when he doubles it up, he's, he's saying, this is, this is truth, this is truth, you need to hear this one out. Truly, truly, I'm saying to you, hear me now, hear me now, unless a person, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. He won't see the kingdom. He won't see the king. He won't understand and love the king. He will not enter the kingdom. He says later, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom. Unless a man is born again, I truly, truly am telling you, I'm trying to, I'm saying it to you. The Spirit of God makes alive, gives new birth, implants a spiritual life in us. It gives spiritual eyes. And he says, and if a person, you can flip that and say, if a person is born again, he can see the kingdom. It makes sense. It's not foolishness anymore. Right? He can see the king and he wants to know him and to follow him and to bow his knee to him as the king, the Lord Jesus. But until that happens, they cannot see. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, he says the natural person, the person not made alive, the person who is still without the spirit, the person of verses 1 to 3, He says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. When he hears them, he can't hear. When he sees them, he can't see. It's foolishness. Foolishness to bow your knee to an invisible king and give of your money and your time and your worship, to gather with a bunch of people and sing songs to him, you know, and all the things, the crazy things that believers do, that we who see the king, and it's as real and as true to us as is the bread that we eat. But to the one, he says, to the natural person, they don't accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. He is not able to understand because they're spiritually discerned and they have not the Spirit. And those things that are spiritually discerned, you need spiritual eyes and spiritual ears, and to do that, you must live. Where there's no spiritual life, there's no spiritual understanding. And so in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 4-6, he says this, the God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. They are following the prince of the power of the air, engaged in the ways of the world and in the fulfilling the desires of their own flesh. But God who said, let light shine out of darkness, right? When did he do that? At the beginning of the world, when all was dark and chaotic, when there was nothing but darkness and formless void, God said, let there be light, and there was. Where there was darkness, there was light. Where there was nothing, there was a sun that was created, the God who by divine fiat, who enters in, who intervenes in the darkness, intervenes in the chaos and says, let there be light. And there was light. And he says, this is the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has done the same thing in the hearts 
of those who are born again. He has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The God who said, let there be light, and there was, is the God who shines his light into our hearts and says, let there be spiritual light, and there is. And we can see the glory of God in the face of Christ where before it was foolishness. And now we see the glory of God in the face of his son and his king, the Lord Jesus. Because God has shown sovereignly, graciously, freely into the heart. Think of Lazarus in the tomb. The human race is like verses one to three. You're like Lazarus in the tomb. They were, you were dead. Like Lazarus in the tomb. What was Lazarus thinking about? What was Lazarus doing? What kind of music was he listening to? Right? The human race are like Lazarus in the tomb. Dead, helpless, no eyes to see, no ears to hear, no ability to get up, no ability to do anything. But God, in the person of Jesus Christ, said, rise. He said, come, Lazarus. But Lazarus couldn't come, even if Jesus called him unless he was alive. And so when Jesus calls Lazarus, it was a call to life. It was the giving and imparting of life. It was the causing to be born again, to rise up from the dead so he could hear and see the Jesus who is calling him and he comes forth. So my friends, let me just run down the list of things. Applying the truth is so what? And so the first question to you that you ought to be running over in your own heart this morning, if you haven't already, is the question, am I born again? Do I know my life to have been touched by God? That I have eyes to see and ears to hear. That he has awakened me and awakened in me spiritual appetites because I'm spiritually alive and I know and taste the truth. And so, do you have an appetite for his word and for his ways, for his people and for his worship, for purity and for holiness? These are the fruits. This is the fountain that flows up in eternal life in those who have come to know him and have been caused to live, awakened to spiritual things and awakened to the life in the presence of God. Are you a churchgoer? or a God lover. And unfortunately, in the church in America today and around the world, there are an awful lot of church goers. Many of them confessedly would tell you they have very little desire for the things of God. Or they'll say, I'm a Christian, and you meet them around Chattanooga all the time, I'm a Christian, I don't go to church, but I'm a Christian. You know, I don't have any part of that, but I'm a Christian. My life hasn't changed, I'm living for myself, I have no appetite for the spiritual things, but... America has almost been inoculated against the gospel of the glory of God bringing people to life and to change everything. Do you see the glory of God in the face of Christ in such a way that you will believe and open your life to Christ as the one who makes alive, as the one who can awaken you to everything that belongs to God? Are you born again? If you know yourself to be alive in Christ, 
And you've opened yourself to the everlasting love of God. And I would say that part of what I think you should take home a few things that you should uh, rest in coming out of this. If you know your life to have been touched and changed and, and life flows and your eyes are open and if this is you, then you can rest in that everlasting love of God because if, if this is you and he has made you alive, you were told that before the world was made, he set his love on you that you should be made alive and adopted as his sons and daughters. What more security is that his love is an everlasting love from eternity past. He has known you and set his love on you and determined and planned to make you alive and to make you his own. And now you stand and live in that moment fully loved and fully alive. That is a love that will not let you go. That is a love that, as an eternity past was set on you, will belong to you for an eternity ahead. Will you rest in his love? The one who made light to shine in the darkness of your heart. To rest in his love for you. Will you trust in this one? The one who began a good work, if you know yourself to be alive, the Bible says that the one who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. If he made you alive again and he put a fountain of life flowing up you know, into life, he says the, the good work he began by raising you from the dead, he says, I'll finish it. To the day of Christ, right? I, am, I have started something and I'm in. Right? And you're in. And, and, and you, I know it's a struggle. I mean, for me, the struggle that we, but part of what keeps me getting up every morning and dusting myself off and saying, you know, today I follow Christ. Today I go forward. Today, because I know he is as committed to me being like Jesus as I am, more committed. To trust in this one who began a good work in you. In Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, Right after this, and we all know eight to 10, right? For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. That's what he just described, right? A new creation in Christ. When you were dead, he made you alive. Two things in there to go away with then. In this verse, let's leave it up if you will. There is deep humility and extravagant worship, right? It is by grace that you have been saved, right? You did not earn it. You could not earn it. It's not because of something you did, right? He says it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, not even your faith. You've been saved by his grace. It's through faith, but this, this, even your faith is not your own doing. It is the gift of God and the new birth and the new heart and the eyes to see. It's not the result of work, so that, where does it leave us? No room to boast. How do you differ from anyone else on the planet except God's mercy? And the great love with which he has loved us. I am no different. I am no better. I did not do anything to earn or to make myself alive. But by his grace and his mercy, he made you alive. 
And it humbles us to our knees to know that when I was verses one to three, when you were dead and when you were following the course of the world and when you were following the prince of the power of the air, when you were a son of disobedience and when you lived in your own passions and flesh and lived for yourself and when you were by nature a child of wrath and part of humankind, in all of that, he's, he made you alive. And that leads to extravagant worship. Right? He made you alive. We are his workmanship. And so to God be the glory alone. To God be the glory. And often again and again we should turn away from ourselves. All the glory now and always. All the glory day by day for whatever triumph, for whatever advancement, for whatever goodness there is in me, from whatever there is. All the glory belongs to the one who began a good work in me and will carry it on to completion to the day of Christ. And we should be extravagantly worshiping people. You should want to be in church because you've been awakened to the fact all the glory is his and we must worship him, love him, honor him, serve him, walk with him. Let us sing and love and wonder that when we were dead, he made us alive to his glory and his glory alone. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for your word that is living and true. We thank you that you have loved us with such an everlasting love. Before the world was made, you set your love and you plan to adopt, to make alive. Father, I pray that you would humble us to our knees before the knowledge that it was not of our own doing, but by grace we have been saved, that we might be worshipers, heart, soul, mind, and strength belonging to the one who has saved us from ourselves. These things we ask and pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.